Caloundra City Private School is an independent, non-denominational school located in Pelican Waters on the Sunshine Coast. The mantra for our school is every student matters. We aim for every child to be confident, resilient, organised, persistent and social in all aspects of their lives in and out of the classroom. This podcast series is designed to share valuable insights from academic leaders on current educational research and perspectives, as we all strive to help our young people reach their potential in today's ever-changing world. Here at CCPS, we have a number of students who are working towards careers as professional athletes in the fields of baseball, golf and swimming. These students are engaged in demanding training schedules and at the same time are completing their final year of schooling, a timetable the school actively supports. So how do they do it? What does it take to achieve success at such an elite level? And how can sport psychology help young athletes return from injury, stay motivated and achieve their dreams? Later in this episode, I chat to three of our Year 12 students who are working hard to achieve their sporting goals. But first up, I'm joined by Dr Jeff Lovell, the Deputy Head of School in the School of Social Sciences and Senior Lecturer in Psychology at the University of the Sunshine Coast. Jeff has an extensive repertoire of real-world examples, data, case studies and stories drawn from his extensive experience in research, applied sports psychology and coaching at an elite level. Dr Lovell motivates his students to succeed in both their studies and professional sporting aspirations. Dr Jeff Lovell, thanks for joining me today. Hi Tracy, it's a pleasure to have the opportunity to have a chat. Thank you. Jeff, can you tell us about the field of sports psychology? What does this branch of psychology focus on? Well, it's a very interesting area of psychology. Uh, it's actually been around for a lot longer than most people would realise. Um, and it's got multiple different aspects that it covers. One of the key things that we're trying to do is help people perform even better in difficult environments. So it's been kind of connected to the recent movement called positive psychology, where we're not trying to solve a problem, although sometimes we do, but instead we're trying to help people excel even further than they can already. So for a lot of sports athletes, they're, they're doing very well in very, very difficult environments already, but they're trying to do better than anyone else in the world. So they might work with a sports psychologist not because they've got a chat, not because they've got a weakness or an issue, but they're trying to maximise their strengths. So in short, sports psychology is about anything that goes on between your ears that's going to relate to how successful and how enjoyable you find your sport. And what strategies do you use to maximise the success of, a, of an athlete in their sport? That's a wonderful question, and if we had several days, we could go through lots of them. Um, there are sort of general broad brush different strategies. So there are some that are behavioral, and you'll see this when you watch people on the TV in their sports, that there's physical behaviors that they do to try and instill a certain state of mind. So for example, if you look at Nadal, the tennis player, he's got these very, very twitchy routines that he goes through each time. And if he steps out of those routines, he, he loses his state of mind. Um, you'll see different players, um, for example, kicking uh, goals in rugby, 
where they have a little routine that they'll go through before they strike the ball to help them be in the best place. So we've got those behavioural techniques uh, and then we've got what we call cognitive techniques. So these are more about the way in which you think. So it might be that you are a, a rugby player um, and you're looking at your opponent and go, oh, gee, they look so strong. And you hold on, I'm distracted, not thinking about the right things. And then you go through a checklist of things that you should be thinking about. We've also got another branch of uh, sports psychology that's more based in training. So we've got some sports that we call competition sports. So there's lots of competitions throughout the year and you might spend more time competing than you do training. So if you're a tennis player on the circuit or you're a professional golfer, you'll spend lots of time competing, but not much time training. So that's a competition-based sport. And then you've got training-based sports. So swimming is a prime example of this where the majority of your time you spend swimming and you have one or two really, really important competitions throughout the year. So for those training-based sports, where they're trying to shave off seconds of their time, it's really, really hard that every training session, its full potential is, uh, is achieved. So how do you keep that level of intensity and focus during your training? Well, there's a whole host of psychological strategies we can use to make sure that motivation stays as high as it can be and training efforts are directed in the best ways possible. What are some of the common challenges that young athletes often face in terms of thoughts and behaviour and particularly motivation? Again, it's, it's, it's very interesting and it is different for different people, but there are some broad categories of things that we see um, and some of them are tied into sort of develop, developmental psychology, the way that people's thinking changes through those um, different stages of life. And there's a couple of key changes around early adolescence as well. So one of the key things that we see is that the better athletes, while being fiercely competitive, become very focused on their own performances. So rather than I have to beat Johnny, that I really want to beat Johnny, but to beat him, I'm going to have to make sure that I do this and this and this really, really well. So the focus becomes more inward in that people are looking at their own performances, not wasting energy on other players that's not going to improve their own performance. So golf is a wonderful example. I'm not allowed to go up and push my opponent during match play. I'm not allowed to shake, shake them as they try and strike the ball. There's very little I can do, really. So focusing on that player and hoping must beat them, want them to do badly, is not actually helping me be in the right mind state to swing in the most effective way that I can and make good decisions on the course. So that mind shift from I really really want to beat you so we call that an outcome orientation or even an ego orientation and we start to move towards process orientations so focusing on what do I have to do to do well and if I do that to the best of my ability and it's better than you do it I'll win now I've got complete control over that I've not got control over how you're going to do so that's a big mindset for for young athletes to change to is worry about yourself and not other people. Um, and there's lots of environments that push athletes the wrong way. So coaching can sometimes be quite ego-orientated. We, we're going we're gonna to beat them this year. 
And while that's good, it needs to be balanced, and also parenting can often become quite focused on beating other children, and then it gets personal, and then we get really anxious as well. We often talk about, especially in swimming, um, beating your personal best. Does that tie in with what you were saying there? Absolutely. Um, and we can even go further than that. So first of all, trying to beat your, your personal best, your PB, is really positive. It's directing you towards a useful goal and you're not wasting energy in thinking about someone else's lane. But me going, I've, I've got to get under one minute, I've got to get under one minute, I've got to get under one minute, is not going to make me swim fast. What do I need to do to get a good time? Are there key technical aspects I need to focus on? Are there elements of my turn that I need to make sure I get correct? So we, we go even further and we have what we call task-relevant cognitions. So thoughts that are related to what you're trying to do. So if I'm a swimmer, and if anyone's ever seen me swim, it's clearly I'm not a swimmer. <laughs> um, it might be that as you get tired in your 400 that you start to not extend fully to get your catch. So having a, a mental checklist that you go through that reminds you catch, 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 catch. That thought is going to help you make sure that you keep doing the action properly. It's going to fill the brain space and stop other negative thoughts coming in that might be related to, oh, gee, this is really hard, I need to stop. So this is a productive thought to helping you go faster. If you go faster, you're more likely to get your time. If you get your time, you're more likely to beat the person in the other lane. But it comes all the way back to you need to do what you do as well as you possibly can. We've, some, we've seen some champions at a, at a very high competition level, the Olympic Games comes to mind, where they, on paper, they should have won the race, but they didn't. What went wrong? Well, there's, a nu there's numerous things that can go wrong and there's numerous things that can go well. So we often immediately gravitate to if someone didn't win and they were supposed to on paper that they've underperformed, it may well be that someone else overperformed. So we have to be careful when we look at this. Uh, and the Olympic Games is, is obviously a, a very particularly uh, special event. It is unlike any other competition that people have ever been to. And it's very easy for different things to get to the athletes. So there can be lots of media. So people start to be thinking more externally, how am I gonna look? Uh, sometimes the media hype things up in, are you gonna beat the other player, the other athlete, so we can be distracted and we start not focusing on what we're supposed to do. And because it is such a massive event, it's very easy to be distracted from the get-go anyway. It, it's before you even get on the aeroplane, you know that this is different. It, it's, it's unlike any other competition you go to. So it can be overwhelming, which puts you off your normal routines and distracts you away from your normal way of thinking about how you do stuff. The psychological pressure must be intense. Absolutely, and the, the Commonwealth Games that's coming up next year, which is going to be on home soil, presents a wonderful opportunity for Australian athletes because everyone else can struggle with jet lag and temperatures they're not used to, so that's fantastic for us. But there will be a higher level of media involvement and that can put pressure on athletes and then we start focusing on the outcomes rather than our processes and generally that can be a negative for our performances. How important is 
being relaxed. How important is relaxation when you need to perform, when you're in the competition, when it's the grand final? That's another wonderful question. Um, and we have a couple of different psychological states of phenomena. So there's arousal, which is how activated you are. And there's anxiety, which is how worried you are. Now, anxiety is generally negative. It's thoughts like, oh, gee, I hope I don't. I hope I don't mess this up. What if I do that? Oh no, I don't look silly. So they're negative and classically associated with poor performances. Arousal, how activated you are, it's not so straightforward. So for lots of sports, you need to be as activated as you can be. So your heart rate will be going and you'll be really G'd up, ready to go. Now, sometimes people get confused and if they're anxious, because perhaps they're attending to the wrong things, they're focusing on the wrong things, they then try and relax. So their level of activation goes down, but they're still focused on the wrong thing. So if you just engage in a relaxation strategy, you may well still be thinking about the wrong things, but you're just a little bit closer to being asleep. <laughs> so it's not as straightforward as relaxation. What we try and talk about more is refocusing. So it's about focusing on things that you've got control over that generally reduces anxiety. And we actually want people to be as activated as their skill level will cope with. Jeff, let's focus now on some of our students at CCPS. We have a number of 16 and 17 year olds who are wanting to become professional athletes, professional sports people, yet they're also managing the demands that go with year 12. What advice would you give these students to help them manage their workload and sporting commitments? First of all, go for it. So the, the literature from teaching and learning, if you like, shows that students who do well at sport frequently excel at academia as well. So I'll just talk about that for a moment and I'll come back to your question. So why is it that the students that are good at sport often do very well at academia? Well, you think about the skills that you need to be a good sports person, a sports athlete, they're very relevant to achievement in any context. So, to be an effective athlete, you've got to be very organized in the way that you train. You've got to make the most out of the limited time you have. You've got to work around problems. You've got to bounce back from uh, knockbacks. You've got to be able to cope under pressure. So there's a huge overlap between the skills that you need to be an excellent athlete and an excellent acad academic. So what advice would I give to somebody in that space? Organization is absolutely everything. You'd be amazed at how much you can squeeze into a day if you're organized. And some of those points of organization may seem very small, but have huge implications. For example, being organized enough that there's always some bananas in the kitchen on the side so that when you go to training you can grab a banana so when you get out of the pool from when you're driving from there to the to school you can feed properly because we know nutrition is really really important so that organization is absolutely everything communication is important as well so um, and I'm sure it's the same at your school, it certainly is at this university, that we work around athletes in terms of their sporting commitments. So if there's an assignment due on the 1st of September, but you happen to be away at state championships, talk to your, your, your teachers at early doors 
and find out what we can do. Can we have it that I submit my assignment early or can I submit it later? Can we change things around? So organisation, communication are without doubt the key things. Jeff, we've spoken about individual sports such as swimming and golf. Let's talk a little bit now about team sports. Uh, we have a year 12 student who is a has a great career ahead of him in baseball. What is it specific to team sports that sports psychology has to offer? Okay, I, I'm going to be a fantastic politician for a moment. I'm going to talk a, a little bit about something else and then come to that. <laughs> so I'll sort of divert the question for a moment and I'll talk a little bit about I call them failures. I, I, I don't like the word failures, but, but not winning, not having a success. And um, for me, this is part and parcel of being an elite athlete. So being an elite athlete or an elite sports person, you're trying to do something incredibly difficult. There is a tiny opportunity for success, and big opportunity for failure. Now, we say that if you keep doing the same old stuff, you're going to get the same old results. So you know, no change, no change. If, if there's no change in the way that you uh, train or prepare, then you'll get no changes in your, in your results. So the first thing is, whether you're an individual player or a team player, you need to look at knockbacks or setbacks as a really positive thing. If you're not, sometimes not winning, if, if, if everything goes well, you're not trying hard enough. Yeah. So these setbacks, these losses are really, really important on your path or your journey to winning. And you've got to think of it as a journey, as a path. And this path takes several years. So you need to try different things. Well, we, we don't know what's going to work. These are elite athletes. They're odd. They, they stand out from the normal. So we're not sure what's the best thing for them. So we have to trial and error. And if you don't think outside the box, you're not going to get to the top. But also, if you don't think out the box, you're not going to try some things that are just out and out don't work. So failures, setbacks, whatever you want to call them, are really, really important building blocks to doing well. Okay, So that's the first thing. With particular reference to team sports, and again, coming back to the things that we said earlier on about focusing on what you can control, focus on the things relevant to your own performances. If I'm within a team, the team might win, but I might have performed horribly. Now, if I base the evaluation of how I've done today purely on the team and I don't look at myself, I'm not going to go away and engage in new strategies to try and improve my standard and my ability to play. So you've got to come, you've got to, that the evaluation has to be specific to you. So if we consider the situation where the team loses, so overall you've lost, but you have played stellar, that's very important that again you evaluate yourself at the level of your own performances. Otherwise, you can be that stellar player whose self-confidence never grows because every loss that the team makes you absorb is to a reflection of your own performance. So within teams, it's really, really important. You've got a team goal. That's important. You're a team. You play as a team. But you also have your individual goals as well. And we talk about this as accountability. And a lot of good coaches of well-performing teams talk about individual 
and team accountability. And this also relates to other stuff. We look at role clarity. So each player's got their own thing that they have to do and you have to do what you do well in that team. You're a cog in that big machine. The lovely example we use is the Formula One racing, the pit stops. Very, very quick. Everyone's got a key job and what you do is you do your job. So if your job is to take the nut off the wheel, that's what you do. You don't worry about anyone else. That's your job. Do that as well as you can. And um, you will depend on other people, but you have to just acknowledge that they'll do it as well as you can. But you focus on your task and doing it as well as you can. And your evaluation of did you play well today is based on that task. How do you overcome the disappointment of losing especially in a team when you said that um, perhaps you've played well, but the team has let you down, and, or indeed you have let yourself down. How do you overcome failure, defeat, and loss? What are some of the strategies that you can use? Well, first of all, it, it has to sting. If, if these disappointments don't hurt, and you are really trying to be good, it's possible you don't want it enough. And remember that sport is actually irrelevant. And for someone who's engaged in sport all my professional life and more so, you know, it's, it's absolutely central to, to what I believe in. But sport is actually somewhat irrelevant. So we're trying to do something irrelevant, but we're trying to be the best that we can. It has meaning to us, and when we don't succeed, it will hurt. And that's something you have to accept, and it's the risks of trying to be an elite athlete. You will have setbacks, and it will hurt. All right. So we know that it's going to sting when I, uh, when I miss that putt or I full start or I get injured or whatever. It is going to hurt. Anyone who says, get over it doesn't matter, doesn't understand what you're going through. It does matter. Even though it's irrelevant, it matters to you. It matters to you at that point in time. So how do we move on from this? Well, every time you do something or every time you think something, it's more likely to happen again next time. So if you have 18 really good greens, really good putts on the green, now let's say 17 really good greens and you have one bad one, and then you spend the next two weeks tearing yourself apart and reliving that, that missed putt over and over and over again, you're actually teaching yourself to miss the next one. So what we need to do is we need to face up to it we look at it very carefully and we look at it carefully once and we extract from it what do we have to do better. Was it a technical problem? Was it a physiological problem? Or was it a mental problem? So we look and go, Where's, where was the weakness? What was it? And then we come up with an action plan of what are we going to do to make it better? And then we move on. And what can you do to make it better? What's an example of an action plan? Um, I'll stick with the mental stuff because mm. obviously that, that's my, my thing. Mm. So say for example you are on the final green of the US Masters uh, or even you're chipping onto the green which is the graveyard for many a great player in that, in that, that sport and suddenly you stop thinking about what it is you have to do and you start celebrating already. Now we know as golf, as soon as you think about, you, oh, if I if I carry on playing like this, I, I'm going to get a I'm going to get a, a one under one under par. You might as well throw your clubs in the lake, because you've shifted from a process orientation to an outcome orientation, and that can be catastrophic. 
So that's what happened. You, you blew the US uh, open because you started thinking about your score and started thinking about the fact that you might win. So your practice mechanisms are gonna, or methods are going to have to be about making sure that doesn't happen again. So we're going to start a year's program and we're going to look at what are we going to do to change the way in which you think when you're closing out games. And we're going to come up with all sorts of strategies to make sure that you don't slip to an outcome orientation. And if you do, you become aware of it and then you fix it. So we come up with strategies that fix the specific problem. Every athlete has the potential of getting injured. Can you talk to us a little bit about injury and some of the fears or uh, strategies that athletes can use to work with injury, overcome injury and come back from injury? Sure, okay. Um, again, if to be an elite athlete, you have to push really, really hard and you're, you're on this very thin tightrope between training hard enough and getting maximum returns for maximum effort, not training hard enough and not getting the adaptations that are big enough to make you successful, and training too hard and starting to get negative adaptations over training syndrome, for example. So it's really likely that you're gonna get injured at some point or you're gonna get some overtraining type illness, particularly as a young athlete when you're learning what can your body cope with. So we've got two broad aspects of injury and illness. There's getting injured, getting sick, and then there's recovering. So if I talk specifically about getting injured for the moment, we know that when athletes are particularly anxious, particularly overwhelmed, particularly fatigued, uh, lots of other stuff going on in their lives, that their risk of injury goes up. So for many athletes, injuries are not random things. So having spent a lot of time working with injured athletes, most of them will tell you a story when you say, well, what, what happened? Well, I thought I should, I, I really didn't want to do the, 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 that training session. I was tired and grumpy and I, I, I felt I shouldn't do it, but I did it anyway. And then halfway through it, bang, my shoulder let go. Um, the skiers are often great ones to talk to as well. They'll talk about, ah, oh, I'd had enough and I decided, you know what, I'm, I'm just going to go up for one more run. I'm going up on the chairlift. I think I really shouldn't do this. And guess what? Halfway down that, that run, like they fall over and smash their knee. So there's often things that we know are putting people at risk. There's psychological uh, stuff that's going on that increases people's risk of injury, either because they're not attending to the right things, they're focusing on the crowd, not looking at the other players, they can't see it when they're hit, or they're fatigued, so their resources are down. So there's things that put you at risk and we can manage those before they happen. So psychology relates to your risk of injury. And then there's becoming injured. And if we work on the idea that every elite athlete is going to have a doozy of an injury at some point, it's, it's kind of it's inevitable almost. So you're going to have to be able to come back from it. And there are a number of strategies and uh, different mental sets or the way in which you're thinking can make it more likely you're going to recover. So one of the key things is you need to develop an environment where the physios and the surgeons can work their magic to get you better. Now as I'm sure you've experienced, the physios give you these really boring little exercises 
to get you better again, which actually work. The problem is they're small, they're not with big weights, they're slow, they're boring and they're not your sport. And trying to get athletes to adhere to their rehab is really difficult. Particularly if they don't think it's worthwhile. So we talk about cognitive appraisal, which is trying to help the athlete look at what's happened to them and go, hey, this is going to be okay, I can get better from this. Because once that appraisal is more positive, they're more likely to engage in those um, positive rehabilitation type behaviours. And then we have to have a phased return back into competitive play as well. And again, athletes, crazy people, massively driven, massively motivated, are more than happy to run before they can walk. So sometimes we do have to slow them down a little bit. But one really interesting thing about rehabilitation from injuries is the mental rehabilitation, the psychological rehabilitation, generally takes longer than the physical rehabilitation. So we will often see the athlete has seen the surgeon, seen the physios, seen the strength and conditioning people and said, hey, you're fine, get back into it. But the athlete is still not quite sure. So for example, I, um, I used to teach, uh, this is back in the UK, I used to teach uh, a chap that was a goalkeeper in soccer, quite a high level, and he'd had a nasty, nasty break of his leg being a goalkeeper. And I was often chatting to him about, you know, how's it going, how's the rehab, and he was doing all the right stuff, he was doing the strength training on the other leg to keep the, the leg that was broken strong, but he was being really, really slow in doing any psychological uh, rehabilitation, and I kept on his case. And it was only about a week before he was supposed to take his plaster cast off. I said, hey, how are you going? He goes, oh, I feel great. I feel really strong. I'm so excited to get him back into it. I'm loving it. Yeah, really. Brilliant. And then just as he's about to walk off, he in passing says, the only problem is I can never imagine kicking a ball again without my leg snapping. <laughs> so, again, he, he'd not been doing the psychological rehab along the way which means it was going to be even longer from when he was physically okay before he was fully physically and psychologically rehabilitated. Jeff, I just wanted to finish today on motivation. Now, all of our young athletes, they say they love their sport. How do you maintain and foster that love of the sport when sometimes you probably just feel like giving up? I mean, what an important question. Um, and it certainly seems to be what we see in athletes when they come to the end of their career prematurely. More frequently than not, it's that the, the brain's given up before the body. You know, some people, Usain Bolt is a prime example, he's actually got to the point where his body just can't keep up with him anymore. But lots of other athletes will stop too early because they got fed up. They got distracted by arguments with selectors, arguments with sports uh, administrators and it changed from being I did the sport because I wanted to be as good as I can to outcomes. So there was um, Beckham, the football player from the UK is a classic example of this. At one point he left Manchester because they wouldn't pay him enough. Now, when he was five, he wanted to play for Manchester and would have paid to play for Manchester. So where did it go wrong from where I would give everything I can 
to be an Olympic medal to you're not funding me enough, I'm dropping out of your sport. So it's about making sure that everything comes back to, remember why you do this, you do this because it's fun. Um, many of the sports that we try and do to high levels, you, you're not going to become a millionaire. It's not the easy way, but it is an opportunity for you to do the thing that you really, really enjoy. And I, I do feel frustrated when I hear athletes saying, oh, I've, uh, I've sacrificed so much for my sport. Really? Or did you not just enjoy it? You know, what, what, what do you mean sacrifice? You, you do this because you want to. This is, a, this is a cool thing. It's great to see how hard you, you can try and, and what achievements you can get. So to keep that mindfulness of remember that you're doing this because you enjoy it. And golf is a wonderful example. So you ask golfers, well, what, 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 how, what do you do? Do you compete in golf? What is it? They say, no, no, we, we play golf. Oh, you play. And play is supposed to be fun, isn't it? So remember that we're doing it most of us are doing it because we've got free choice and we choose to do it because we like it. You can choose what to focus on. You can choose on the bureaucracy. You can choose to focus on the politics. Or you can choose to focus on enjoying the sport that you love and trying to be as good as you possibly can be at it. It's been a fascinating interview. Thanks very much, Jeff. Thank you. I'm joined today by one of our Year 12 swimmers, Tyra Stowers. Tyra, thanks for joining me. <laughs> thanks, Miss, for having me. Now, Tyra, I know you've been swimming for many years. Can you tell us what does an average week look like for you in terms of your training schedule? So an average week for the standard competitive swimmer, where you have to be at national level where I'm at, is nine, ten sessions a week plus four sessions of gym. And each swimming session would be two and a half hours long but then before that you have an hour session of gym with that and then you wake up 4am every morning except Wednesdays yeah wow that sounds how do you manage that and complete year 12 at the same time you have to be very um, organized and time orientated extremely like you just need to be focused and have everything organized the weeks in advance like you must really love swimming what is it about swimming that gives you that motivation to get up at 4am? Oh, it's the drive that you know when you're competing and it's just the feeling you get. You get a real like, high off it when you are competing. Like nothing else gives you that feeling. Have you always loved swimming? Yeah, yeah, since I started when I was eight, when we were in Dubai because it was too hot. So I was like, I didn't want to do any other sport because it was in the pool, so I was like, okay. <laughs> But yeah, I've just always loved competing and swimming is just the one that I love. Well, let's talk about competing because I know that the psychological preparation and obstacles that sometimes you need mentally to focus to be in the pool, how do you find that? Oh, it's super difficult at times. You know, you go from one like 7K session in the evening and then you have to back it up the next morning. It'll be another race pace session, another 7K in the morning, wake up 4am, you've got to get out of bed. You've got, the, even in winter, the pool will be cold and you don't want to get in. And you just need to, it's all about, with even with competition and training, it's 90% mental, 10% physical. It's like you can have natural talent, but that'll peter out. It's all mental. You have to be really mentally strong. 
And how do you stay mentally strong? What strategies do you use? Oh my gosh. <laughs> <laughs> um, I don't know. You just have to be very like, it's the passion you have to have for the sport. If you don't love it, you're not going to wake up and you're not going to try 110% that you need to give for the sport. And then I just feel like if you're not going to do that, you're wasting your time. So you just need to get up and just get up and do it. <laughs> do you ever have times when you don't want to get up? Oh, every, every morning is a time <laughs> I do not want to get up. <laughs> Who wants to wake up at 4 a.m. to go swimming? Yeah. Like, let's be real. But you get up, though, and you yeah. do it. You get up, you do it. It's just you've got to do it because you think of the end outcome, the goal that you have set in your mind, and it's just the end result the year after. Cause what is your goal? The Olympics. I've always wanted to go to the Olympics. But like I, I like to, you can't, you have to have that end goal, which you look at, but then you have to have small goals to like keep focused and keep aiming for the end result. Otherwise you'll just lose focus and you'll think, well, I haven't made the Olympics last year. I'm going to quit because I haven't made it and I'm not good enough. Well, you have to have little small ones like make a national final, make a national time for some people make national medal. Do you know what I mean? Like mm. you've got to keep going through the motions. So a personal best? Yeah, exactly. It's especially at my age now, when you're in the national level of swimming, it's so hard to like even drop 0.2 of a second. It's like just getting that time down is an achievement in itself. So Tyra, I've heard that swimming is an incredibly technical sport. Can you take us through some of those technical elements that are important to be a successful swimmer? Oh yeah, everything within swimming is extremely technical and scientific. People don't understand how they, how it's like more than just swimming laps. They think, oh, it's easy. You can swim laps up and down and you'll be world champ. Like, no, it doesn't work like that. It's very much so you have to keep um, a stable weight. If you get heavier or lighter within the water, you just won't move. And you have to readjust your whole stroke to fit that weight. If you're at the gym and you're working the wrong muscle groups, like let's say you've worked your arms and you've bulked arms and you think, oh yeah, this will get me through the water even faster. Well, no, you'll get back into the pool and you'll start sinking through your arms and you won't be able to get through that last 15 metres of a race because you would have built up with lactate too early and too fast and you're just not going to get there. So I imagine that diet is incredibly important. Oh yeah, I had to follow extremely harsh dietitian where it's just like you have to constantly keep a stable weight otherwise you're not going to get anywhere. <laughs> I think that's really fascinating that um, your weight actually affects your stroke because you are pulling your body through water. Yeah, swimming's completely body weight um, orientated. So you're trying to get keep that state like good weight that you need to figure out while you're swimming through your years which you compete the best at and keeps you through the water going at good speed. Do you find that you have, I know that in the past you've had an injury to your shoulder. Yeah, I've had shoulder injuries since I was 12. How do you manage that, overcoming injury and getting back in the See, pool? It's really hard because I know that once you struggle from injury, that I did at such a young age as well, um, you get really like defeated from it. Like you get really in a bad mental state and you think well if I push myself further I'm just going to get back injured again and I'm going to have to go through doing nothing for another seven I was out for seven months just doing kick 
and that was just awful. And like every single time I'm training now, I just, I just feel like I do not want to go back to that. So it's like you have to really like figure out the lengths you can push your body to actually get to the results that you want without injuring yourself again. And you need to overcome that fear of thinking I'm going to get injured again. And yeah. It's have just, you overcome that fear? See, I it took me ages, but I think like I'm getting there now. And it's with heaps of, I have sports psych, and he's really good with that. And um, just really like rehabilitation work, like physio, massage, three times a week. Then you go Pilates, you have to just, it's everything that you have to keep doing to stay on top of it and not get back to that place. Well, Tara, I think your determination is really admirable. And, um, you know, to be able to complete your regime and also finish year 12, I just wanted to finish today on this question I've always wondered. What do you think about when you're going up and oh down my God. the pool? <laughs> Does everyone ask that question? I've always wondered. I just have to think about my coach, like him, what he tells me before I'm swimming. He'll give you pointers of what you need to be working on while you're swimming. Sometimes I'll have like one of my favourite songs stuck in my head and I'll be singing that on the along the way, like seven k's up and down. I'll be like, yeah. Oh, yeah. So does your mind drift? Yeah, it does. I have to constantly keep at it. It's just like, it's like when doing assignment work, you get procrastinated sometimes and you just have to be like, nope, need to get back onto it. So it's, that's exactly the same with swimming. And it's just like, you have to keep thinking about what you need to work on, how you're going to get better. Because every, everyone at the national level, it's the top 1% in Australia. They're all working as hard as you. They're all doing the same as you. They're all, and it's like, you need to find a way to break yourself from that and become better than the 1%. Well, yeah. Tyra, I wish you all the best. Thanks for joining me today. <laughs> Thank you for having me. <laughs> so I'm joined today by Drew Cusick. He's one of our 17-year-old Year 12 students here at the school. Thanks for joining me, Drew. That's all right. Drew, you play baseball. Tell us about your current commitments in baseball and the high level at which you're going to um, get into one day. Okay, so right now I'm training very intensely to prepare myself to play college baseball. And so I've been selected to play for the Australian team. And we will be playing in front of a bunch of different professional and college scouts in America. And from there I'll be able to pick a place and play there four years and then hopefully transition into a pro player as high up that I can go in the rankings as possible. How long have you been playing baseball for? Um, 13 years. And what position do you play? I play, well it depends, every team's a new position because that's probably my strong side. I can play anywhere on the field. So hitting's my, I don't know, probably my, be the best aspect of my game I'd say. So as long as I'm in the field anywhere playing solid defense, that's um, what pleases the coach, I guess. Now you have um, dreams to play professional baseball in America. How are you going to go about achieving that goal whilst finishing year 12? Yeah, it's been difficult. I have to do a lot of traveling to Brisbane. There's a lot of, um, there's basically a, every night there's a new training session. There's, um, so I have to balance a lot of homework and assignments in the car. I have to focus in class to make sure I'm getting as much of it done uh, as possible because I know I don't have the time to get it done on my weekends and 
basically every weeknight, so I really have to balance my time uh, well. What do you find the most challenging mentally in playing baseball at the level that we're talking about here? Well, it's a long season and I'm playing against men who are way more experienced than I am. So it's like, as I said, it's a long season, so you're gonna have bad games and the biggest thing is just trying to balance that, keeping a clear mind and rebounding. Even if you struggle one game, you gotta be able to go out there the next day and play well. You can't let it affect you mentally. And how do you do that? How do you not let it affect you mentally if you've had a bad game, if you've you know, been struck out or you've just had a bad game? How do you get back up again? Uh, well, I always think baseball is a game. It's just a game. It's fun. Um, it shouldn't be anything taken too seriously, even though I have high goals uh, regarding my performance. But uh, yeah, I just try and look forward, don't look backwards, and, and, and try and enjoy every moment while I'm out there because I know it's not going to last forever. And I also imagine if you have a great game, that's a big confidence builder, yeah? Yeah, usually if I have a good game, um, I can usually reflect on what I did well and try and continue that form into the next few games and try and uh, yeah, keep the momentum going on. You said, and we were discussing this before, but you've worked with a sports psychologist just for interest or um, for your own game. Can you tell us a little bit about how sports psychology has helped you or helped you understand your game? Yeah, so the sports psychologist I worked with basically pointed out that uh, to be an effective athlete, you need to know yourself and know what works for you. So if you're an energetic person um, and that's how you go about your day-to-day uh, -day basis, then he said continue that on game day. Don't try and be any different just because you know uh, you need to play well. But um, yeah, just know what works for you, know what you're uh, comfortable with and stick to it. How important is the relationship with your coach? Yeah, it's pretty important. You have to, uh, they have to have confidence in you and um, know that you're the right personality to go with their team and that you're not gonna bring anyone else down or show a bad attitude on the field. So they need to, need to know they can count on you. And what sort of personality do you have when you're on the diamond? Well, usually I'm one of the younger players on the team. Um, I try and be a leader but usually I'm one of the younger guys so um, I kind of I'm a bit quiet go about my own business and yeah it's it's a good group of um, players that I usually play with so it's good to have a joke but most of the time it's just um, yeah going about my business and doing it in a effective manner. And finally Drew what is it about baseball that you love that's you know drawn you to pursue this game for so many years to do it through your high schooling and to go to America and play professional one day well I've always loved baseball ever since I started playing it and dad used to say try and make a career out of something you love so I love baseball I've loved the smell of uh, going out to the ballpark and watching the guys play and um, yeah the feeling when you hit a ball and get a clean base hit or hit a home run or make a diving catch is always something new. It's never the same game two games in a row or never, I've never played a game that's been similar to another one. It just differs so much. So it's always, you never know what you're going to get when you come to the ballpark. Thanks for joining me today, Drew. That's all right. Thank you for having me. My final guest today is Sarah Wilson. She's one of our U12 girls who is working hard on the golf course with the aim to become a professional golfer one day. Sarah, thanks for joining me. That's okay. Pleasure now, to be here. 
Sarah, you're looking pretty tired. You've had a big week. Yes. Can you tell us what you've been doing in golf this week? Uh, so I have just finished competing in the Queensland Women Amateur Stroke Play, and it's a four-round tournament of 72 holes, contested over three days, um, with the first two days having a cut, and then only half of the field being, I guess you could say, allowed to play the next day, which I had to play 36 holes in one day, which is quite an effort, um, at Bribey Island Golf Club. How do you play 36 holes in one day? <laughs> it's very tiring. You start generally tee-offs around 6.30, so that means you have to get that 5.30, 5-ish for your hour and a half prep warm-up, and then you play, and you generally only get 40 to 20 minutes in between to, I guess, go to the bathroom, sit down for a little bit, and then you're straight back out there for another four and a half hours playing your next round. And it's very mentally tiring, I guess, more than anything. Can you tell, talk to us about that? What, what is mentally tiring about? Um, I guess over every ball, you have to have complete con commitment to what you're hitting. You have to know what type of shot you want to hit. You're telling your brain what to do with your muscles every single shot. When you're over the ball, you're taking in the lie, how the grass is, which way the wind's blowing, how strong the wind is, the elevation of the ground you're standing on, how far away the green is, and bunker carries and what certain clubs you need to hit if the wind is stronger do you need to go up or down a club and if it's coming off the left or to the right where to aim and just actually still then trying to hit the golf ball it sounds like a lot of decision making it is yeah and then once you do decide you really have to commit otherwise if you're in still in two minds your shot doesn't come out quite as well as what it should so how do you manage the the technicalities of golf and the physical requirement of golf and finishing year 12 at the same time? Um, it's quite intense so I just had the past four days off and so far we are in end of week seven so almost start of week eight and I've been 13 days this year at school or this term sorry at school and trying to I still get good grades so I don't know how I think it might just be a fluke but then the physical side of golf I have gym to go to as well and then practice and technical takes a lot of hours on the course getting the muscle memory with your swing and if you have to work on a few things generally I think I'm doing a pretty good job balancing it but it's bloody hard and yeah, yeah I um, go home quite exhausted some days to mum and dad and just want to sleep. I don't blame you and I mean I've taught you Sarah you're a very organized student and I think that that helps a lot. It does if god if I didn't have a schedule on what I was doing I think I'd be all over the shop and I think timing and self management on what you need to do and prioritizing when you need to do it with school especially um, really shows on the golf course side of things because if I have a tournament coming up so I do I have another tournament in four weeks and then after that, a week after I head to Victoria and then New South Wales after that, I have to prepare for them tournaments now. So that a bit, little bit more increased work ethic on the golf course, doing harder and more intent practice with a few more longer days to get that muscle memory into form because it generally takes three to four weeks for your practice to pay off in golf. So you won't see the results straight away. So then when it comes closer to the tournament, say two weeks out, I'll drop it off a little bit and relax just to get my physical side, I guess, prepared and ready for the weeks ahead. What yeah. do you find physically is the most exhausting about playing golf? Is it driving? Um, 
like as though with golf itself or with the swing i suppose um i wouldn't even say because once you start to get your swing it becomes just a habit like i could not not hit a golf shot without any feeling it would be completely normal and my body would be used to it i guess what's the most tiring thing is walking up a hilly course that can be quite tiring but mentally it more than anything i think golf is by far 80 percent mental and 20 percent ability towards your game because anyone can put the ball from there to there but it's how you do it and the way you do it that changes everything what do you find mentally that you need to work on um i've been working really hard on when i do hit a bad shot not getting angry about it because that really hinders your performance for the next few holes even all round if you can't drop hitting that bad shot like gets you because you've practiced the shot a thousand times and you know you can hit it and yet it still doesn't pay off it's quite frustrating because then you go into more trouble and then you get angry and annoyed and so I guess working on the mental side of being able to forget that like I have this rule where I have a five second rule where if it doesn't matter in five years I'm not going to spend more than five seconds worrying about it so that kind of helps me on the golf course just yeah okay I did that wrong but I've got to now think of the shot that I need to hit next to get me back in play. And finally Sarah why do you spend so much of your life playing golf <laughs> as a sport? What is it about golf that you love and keeps you motivated? I think I, it's really hard to explain it's like a bug I guess you get once there's no other feeling than when you hit the best shot of your life to two foot on this impossible hole and it's like I guess winning the lotto you never have that feeling again because it's just something special and I don't know I think I really love golf because it's an individual sport like I grew up playing netball in a team environment and I love the team environment but it's up to me with golf where yes people can tell me but at the end of the day if I'm the one if I win then it's my reward and all my hard work being paid off and it's just like a little bit more incentive to work towards for yourself because once you get there yeah you have coaches and all that to thank but it was all you if that makes any sense like mm. you and I just I love the sport I think it's so good and I think a lot more people should play and shouldn't bag it out they should try it beforehand <laughs> Okay, well, um, thanks for joining me today, That's Sarah. Great. Best of luck with it all. Thank you very much. And I hope you enjoyed this sporting episode featuring three of our sporting stars, as well as the insight and advice shared by Dr. Jeff Lovell from the University of the Sunshine Coast. For students interested in going to university whilst maintaining their sporting goals, it's important to note that the university offers the High Performance Student Athlete Program, specifically designed to assist students to achieve excellence in both their sport and tertiary studies. If you'd like more information, links are available in the episode description. This podcast was produced by Tracy Burton, featuring music by Paul Cusick. Thanks for listening.